Welcome back to part two of Advice Around the World with Michael Kitzes. In case you missed the first episode, Ian and I discussed with Michael the hallmarks of the best financial planners, ways advisors can scale their practice, and which tech separates average firms from the great ones. Now let's jump in with one of the hot debates in the industry today, PPP loans. Michael, in the U.S., I mean, this has been such a big debate right now, so I wanted to bring it up with you. Um, it's on Twitter all the time. We're writing about it at CityWire. There's been this huge trend of RIAs taking out these government-backed paycheck protection program loans um, here in the States. Do you think the larger firms should take it? And, and yeah, why, and if so? Give us a bit of background on it as well, because I think yeah. our other listeners might not be so familiar with it. Yeah, sure. So, so the background context, you know, lots of countries obviously have been having significant economic hits because of the pandemic shutdown and what it does to you know, a wide range of businesses across the board. Uh, you know, some countries have tried to do business stimulus. Some countries have di- tried to do uh, you know, safety net or support systems directly to uh, individuals. In mm-hmm. the U.S., we did a blend of both. So we did a series of essentially stimulus checks like government's tax refund checks that went directly out to individual citizens. Uh, And then we did a couple of different business programs, essentially one for very, very large firms uh, and a a big program for smaller firms that was called the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program or PPP for short. And the essence of the PPP was to say, Uh, You can get uh, a loan from the government that ultimately will become forgiven. So essentially the loan turns into a grant for up to two and a half months of your payroll expenses. So roughly 10 weeks of staff salaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in order to borrow the money and then ultimately have it forgiven, you need to A, actually spend the money on staff salaries. So the whole point was like, you can't get the money and fire your people and then keep the money. You have to use the money to employ the people, right? So it was mm-hmm. meant to keep jobs online until the shutdowns ended. And, and you had to certify that you actually needed the money due to the economic uncertainty of the pandemic environment, right? Some businesses are severely damaged. They desperately need the money. Some businesses are you know, clearly doing fine, right? If you, you know, if you happen to be in the ventilator business, it's kind of a bull market for you right now. So you probably don't need government loan money, uh, right? So some businesses happen to be in areas that did really well. They clearly don't need the money. Some businesses were in, you know, horribly distraught sectors of the economy. They absolutely need the money. Uh, and so there was this certification for the folks in the middle that said, if you certify that you need the money due to the uh, uh, uncertainty of the pandemic environment, you can have access to the money as well. And so that's created a lot of, uh, I think, controversy around financial advisory firms drawing on the dollars. Um, you know, there, it has happened in the US. There have been some pro- high profile cases of it. Uh, to be fair, no one has actually produced aggregate data about how often this is occurring in practice. So whether those are the exceptions to the rule or representative of a giant swath of firms that has been doing it, uh, we don't know. My, my gut, just at least from the lightweight polling we've been able to do even amongst our readership, is that this has not been w- as widespread and prevalent as some has made it out to be, but there were a lot of firms that, mm-hmm. that went and did this. Now, the, the interesting phenomenon about this, including the fact that large firms have been going for the dollars, is 
the reality at the end of the day, um, you know, if you are a solo advisor, A, the business can be pretty profitable and good income for you. Uh, and B, while, you know, the, the slowdown or the pandemic shutdown can certainly impair your business, uh, like it doesn't impair your employees because you don't have any. Like you have to grow to a certain size to have enough employees that an economic recession could cause you to lay off employees for you to actually need the dollars in the first place. So it, to me, just it's worth reflecting first and foremost, while, there, while there's been a lot of people pointing to like, why are these mid to large size firms, the ones that we're seeing talking about PPP, I think those are actually the ones that would be most, uh, for, for whom it would be most relevant in the first place, because they actually have employees with paychecks on the line. Yeah, so, so Michael, just to jump in there, I mean, uh, which, which firms do you think need this most? Is it, is it purely about the size of your overheads and your payroll? Or are there any other reasons why firms might need the money? It, it really drives to size of payroll and, and overhead. You know, at the end of the day, for most advisory firms, anywhere from about 70 to 80% of expenses are staff, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't run machine-intensive businesses. I don't have inventory uh, like a store or a warehouse. I don't have factory equipments that I've had to invest into. Like advisory businesses, most of our cost is people. You know, people, a little bit of, a little bit of rent and a little bit of tech and mostly people. So, uh, so advisory businesses, just our, our expense structure is tied to the people. And because we're a service business, the last thing you want to do in a distraught environment is fire your people and reduce service to clients. So it's extremely hard to downsize uh, in, in, the middle of a, in the middle of a recession. And so that's what puts the pressure on advisory firms. The, the, the secondary thing just to recognize though is the, the range of profitability that occurs for advisory firms. Individual advisors tend to be incredibly profitable. Established firms in the US, we often see advisors that could be taking home 60 to 80 cents on the dollar of the revenue that they, that they generate in in running you know solo high profit individual practices you know it's like particularly with all the technology now it's like it's you and your hundred clients and maybe a part-time assistant and a bunch of tech that costs you 50 to 100 bucks each for for a couple of technology tools like you can run a ludicrously efficient effective business once you grow to multi-advisor firms with multiple employees though the margins drop down very very quickly uh when we look at the benchmarking studies for uh, uh, firms with five to $10 million of revenue. It's like, that's a good size firm. Uh, that's probably uh, 25 to 50 employees. That's probably anywhere from three to 10 advisors, depending on their average client size. Uh, like that, that's a good size number of people in an independent firm. 75% of firms in that range run 12% profit margins. So even a moderate pullback will result in staff terminations that you really don't want to do in a recession. Now, the irony is the other 25% of firms have a median profit margin close to 40%. So the advisory industry, what we see on the ground once you drill into the data is a small subset of highly profitable firms and the overwhelming majority that simply put are finding it really hard to scale. They're mm -hmm. doing the best, they're serving clients, but they have to hire a lot of people to do what they're doing. Their margins aren't terribly robust. And when you get a significant market pullback, at least for what we were looking at in March, obviously by the time we're having this discussion, there's been a big market recovery. But as firms were looking at the, at the market nadir in March, 
and their prospective billing, a lot of them were staring this down and saying, if we continue to bill at this rate, we will have to fire staff. I don't have the margins as a mid to large size firm that I did when I was a highly profitable solo. Uh, and of course, the, the compounded irony to this is, look, if you really want to have profit margin to your firm, like it's pretty straightforward, just charge a maximum fee and do as little work as you possibly can. You'll have good <laughs> fees and little staff costs and you can be really profitable. The firms that were most focused on delivering deep client service and the ones that cared the least about making profits because they were in it to serve their mm -hmm. clients are ironically the ones that had the worst profit margins and the ones that ended up being most threatened by the pandemic and the ones that are most likely to end out going to get dollars under PPP. Do RIAs need to disclose PPP loans? So, so this became an interesting issue. We were actually the first ones to write about this on Nerd's Eye View, raising questions about whether both broker-dealers would have to make a disclosure uh, uh, around this because there are some disclosure requirements on their paperwork, what's called the U4 here in the US. Mm -hmm. And then uh, registered investment advisors who operate under the advisory structure have a different set of regulations that also raise disclosure issues. So we, we actually, as soon as PPP broke and we saw like the nature of this program at the end of the day is a loan forgiveness structure and where you have to certify your business is in enough distress to need the money that raises all sorts of questions about our industry's financial disclosure rules. Uh, the ultimate conclusion from the regulators was the brokerage industry said no, uh, because it's agreed upon upfront that this is a forgiveness program. It's not actually a modification of your debt. Therefore, it's not a disclosure event as a broker. Uh, from the RIA side, our Securities Exchange Commission said, yes, this is a disclosure event. At the end of the day, if you are gonna certify uh, to the government that your business is in enough distress that it needs the money to ensure it won't need to terminate anybody, you need to tell your clients mm -hmm. that the business is under financial distress, right? It's not a guarantee that you're going out of business or that they're not gonna get service, but you can't, you can't certify to the government it's bad enough you need the money and then not say to your clients that things are tough right now. Uh, and, and frankly, I think that's, I think that's an appropriate interpretation, right? There's also, and, and we've seen this pile on as commentary has come around PPP, right? All the obvious connections of, you know, if you're such a great financial advisor, why aren't you able to manage your own business with enough margins to be able to withstand an economic downturn, right? We tell our clients, make sure you got enough reserves to, to withstand a downturn. Why don't you have that as an advisor? I think it's a fair question for clients to ask and something firms should need to explain. The caveat is just, yeah, at the end of the day, scaling an advisory business is actually hard. And when we look at the data, most advisory firms have very narrow margins in the scaling phase. And so, yeah, this turned out to be bad timing for some of them. And they went for dollars to support. You know, could they have done something else like fire employees, uh, lose some clients, and then try to you know, recover with what's left? Yeah, I'm sure they could have, and a bunch probably would have come through that okay. But at the end of the day, when the government makes a program to keep you from firing your employees, uh, you, you do that to avoid firing your employees and keep your clients served. And I think that's what we've seen a lot of firms do, particularly the mid-sized ones that were focused on clients, hired more staff to service them, didn't have the same margins because scaling is hard, and got hit by a tough bear market at a, at a tough time. Yeah. And 
honestly, I think we could probably discuss this for hours. I can imagine it's controversial. If it happened in the UK, I, I think the comments underneath the articles would be into the hundreds. Yeah. Um, but I will, I will move on um, because we've only got so much time, Michael. And I want to talk about communication. Um, now, uh, Amelia, you might feel the same way. I mean, when I, when I started in financial services, uh, I was expecting a very kind of stuffy, formal world. And maybe in some parts it is, to be completely honest. Um, but looking at your blog, Michael, it, it's kind of fun. It has personality. You have your nerd cred profiles, you know, including some of the stuff, um, you know, kind of touched into the stuff you mentioned earlier. Um, so my kind of question to you with that in mind and just being yourself is what's your advice to people on, on building a brand, you know, within financial services? So, so to me at the core, they're, they're like, there's really only a few things that are necessary for uh for building an effective brand in, in financial services like at, at the end of the day it really just comes down to uh you know who you're trying to talk to have something to say for them and do it with brutal consistency mm -hmm. like that that's that's really all it is uh you write down the fact that you know our 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 brand is known in part for our, our blue color and the, and the blue shirts that I wear. Uh, you know, there's even a, a Twitter parody account for my blue shirt. I, I honestly, I actually have no idea who it is. Like someone just really made a parody account out of, out of my blue shirts. Uh, and, and all that came out of was, you know, I decided I like the shirt. I want to make a brand out of it. So I bought 12 of them and I wore it every time I was seen in public. Consistency. And, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, there's a parody account for my clothing. Uh, like we, we uh, you know, I think sometimes we make out branding to be harder than it actually is. It's just about doing things with the level of consistency that they become known. The blocking point though, that most firms really have at the end of the day, it's, it's not really about the how to build a brand. It's really the who are you doing it for in the first place. Mm-hmm. The who is the blocking point. You know, I, I, most advisors I find, we tend to get caught in this trap and it comes, I think really from our sales-based roots. Like I, you know, this is how I got trained because I started out as an insurance agent in my career 20 years ago. Uh, you know, the way we typically get caught is, you know, you kind of, to use a fishing analogy, like I got a fishing net, I want to go get some clients, some fish. So, you know, I put the fishing net out there in the water and try to catch some fish. And if you throw the net and you don't get any fish, the typical industry advice is, well, just grab the net, stretch it bigger so that you can cover more area and you'll capture more fish, right? Like if the shotgun mm -hmm. approach isn't working, fire the shotgun water. But if you imagine for a moment, obviously we're in podcast format, but you know, imagine my hands are stretched out in front of me and I'm holding a fishing net by the corners, opposite corners. So if I take this square fishing net that I'm holding by the diagonal corners and I stretch my arms wider to make the fishing net bigger, what happens? The holes in the fishing net all get bigger because that's what happens when you stretch the net, which means if this is now my net and I throw it back out in the water, I catch fewer fish. I might hit more fish because the net is bigger, but they all swim through the holes because the holes are bigger. If you actually want to catch more fish, or if you want to have effective marketing, you don't keep stretching the net bigger and bigger 
which gets you more prospects, but not more clients, right? You hit more fish, but you don't catch more fish because they swim mm -hmm. through the holes. If you actually want to catch more fish with the net, you don't stretch it wider. You get a really, really tight net and you go find a river where there's a lot of fish and you put the net there. And so if you think about that in the context of the advisory business, it's less about how do I keep casting my net wider and wider to get more prospects? Oh my gosh, I'm not getting enough prospects. So let's try more different marketing programs and more different channels to get more people in the door. Instead, it's about saying, what is the exact type of fish that I am hunting for? Because the more I get focused on the kind of fish I want, the more I can focus on exactly how do I design the net? Where do I put it? Where are those fish located? And how do I go to the exact place that I can find the exact ideal clients that I want to serve? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think what you're actually going to find in the coming years is that the standout firms of the 2020s and into the 2030s will be the firms that do the best job at getting crystal clear on their niche, their specialization, their target clientele, and spend the next 10 years relentlessly showing up for that one ideal clientele, exactly where they are, wherever they are, it's easier to figure it out once you get clear on who you're going after and build incredibly successful focused businesses. Because the, you know, at the end of the day, most of us can be wildly successful with 50 to 100 high quality clients. Even large independent firms might have thousands of clients. Uh, and those, are, those can be immense firms. You know, when, when your key to success is measured in the dozens or hundreds or even few thousands of clients and there's 7 billion people on the planet, the truth is it doesn't even matter how specific you get on your target clientele. You almost can't get too specific. Mm -hmm. The failing is actually thinking that you get a better chance with a net for 7 billion than recognizing your best chance is to figure out a net that's only going after 7,000 and trying to capture a couple hundred or a couple dozen of them. And on your, going back to your, to your blog a bit and just how much content you produce and have produced over the years. I mentioned this earlier, but people have joked that you do so much that you probably do not sleep. So how do you stay productive and, and, continue to do so in, in these, especially in these trying times right now? So, so first and foremost, ironically, the answer is actually get sleep. Uh, I, I really do uh, need my sleep, focus on my sleep. I do not do well without sleep. I've got a Fitbit that tracks my sleep, which occasionally I post online just to prove I really do sleep. Uh, <laughs> uh, like I just sleeping and being well rested to be able to tackle the day, uh, like really does matter more than we tend to give it credit for. Um, you know, from there, you know, I, I kind of got trained early on in this philosophy that your business will do best when you focus all of your time in whatever is your highest and best use and you let go of or delegate or, or, or find some way to stop doing the rest. Uh, you know, uh, Dan Sullivan of a strategic coach calls this finding your unique ability uh, different coaches out there have different labels around it. But, but it all builds around that essence of what is the thing that you can do that has the most and greatest impact in your business and letting go of everything else. And in practice, I've simply spent you know, 15 to 20 years relentlessly focused on that approach and always trying to evolve. What am I doing? What do I need to stop doing that no longer makes sense for me to spend my time on? I need to get someone else handed off to them, let them do it and refocus my energy elsewhere. And 
uh, just doing that continuously yields a, a whole lot of results over time. The biggest challenge that I really actually had just from a, a mental mindset perspective, uh, you know, for years and years, I felt bad about the approach of, you know, do, do the things that you're best at that give you energy and delegate the stuff that you don't like that isn't a good use of your time. Because I literally felt bad. Oh, it's sort of this philosophy of like, take everything you don't like and make it someone else's problem was, was kind of what I felt like that advice amounted to. And I, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I do this to help people. So sort of a guiding philosophy of take all the things you don't like and make them someone else's problem was really sort of a deep down blocking point for me. And what eventually overcame that was just sort of this recognition, like human beings are wonderfully varied. We like different things. And, you know, for me being someone that just gets mired in like, I don't like dealing with just minutia processes and procedures and checking the box on stuff. Like I'm very good at attention to detail. That's how I read tax laws and write giant articles, but uh, you know, like just building and paying attention to the details of workflows for me personally is tiring. I understand why they're important, but I don't like building them. Well, there are people out there whose dream job is just to wake up every day with a checklist of things to do, be able to check the things off the list and be done at the end of the day. And that's an awesome day for them. For me, that's not what gives me energy. For them, that's totally what gives them energy. So you know what? Find a person who loves to do the things that you hate. And like now it feels good. I'm not delegating what I don't like. I'm giving them something awesome to do that they love doing anyways. And now they do what they like and I do what I like. And they're probably going to be better at it than I was anyway, since they actually like it and I don't. And suddenly your business starts growing more. And so that like that for me was really the the mindset shift and just doing that systematically and always focusing on where am I spending my time and does it really make sense to spend time there and should I be letting it go or shifting somewhere else? Uh, you know, when you do that persistently, uh, some good stuff happens over time. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, we've only got one question left for you now, Michael, purely because of time. Um, and that is, and we always save this one to the end, um, yeah. you know, bearing, bearing in mind, you've got the whole financial planning community listening worldwide. You've got one parting shot. So what is your one piece of advice for planners around the world? Invest in yourself. Invest in yourself first and foremost. When I started my career as an insurance agent, my value was the quality of the products that my company brought to the table. Right? Like at the end of the day, I sold the stuff that they made available for me to sell. They taught, they tried to give me differentiated high quality products to sell. And then they gave me training about the features and benefits of the product so I could go out there and sell them. But at the end of the day, what I sold was their value, not mine. And at the most basic level to me, the shift from products to advice is about this shift from your value being what the company brings to the table to the value being what's between your two ears, right? Your knowledge, your expertise that you bring to bear for the typical clientele that you serve better than anybody else. And the only, and the, I guess like the way you lift that value, the way you make yourself more valuable in the marketplace, the way you make your business more valuable, the way you serve your clients better, the way that you generate more success is by investing in yourself first and foremost. Uh, you know, which I do right down to the point, you know, the, I, I know this is heresy in, in financial advisor world. Uh, I have not contributed to retirement accounts for more than 15 years outside of a small dollar amount I put in to get my company matched because I 
to yeah. do the match, the money, the math on company matches, which is really good. Uh, but short of that, I, like I don't, I don't even save into retirement accounts. I save into myself. That's why I, I have kind of alphabet soup of degrees and designations, and have ultimately started a whole bunch of different businesses over the years. Uh, not that everybody has to be an entrepreneur or is wired to be an entrepreneur, but if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, heck, even 50s, if you're young at heart and planning on doing this for 10, 15, 20 more years, uh, you, know, you, you can't make a better investment than into yourself when your value at the end of the day is literally you and what you bring to the table because that's what it is in an advice world. And, and I still see so many advisors at the end of the day, even running successful practices, who can't wait to pull all the money out of their businesses and put it into some other account instead of saying the best thing I could possibly invest in is me and this thing that I created for my clients. Well, with that brilliant parting note, um, sadly, this is all we have time for, but Michael, huge thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, thank you, Michael. My what pleasure. a great insight. Yeah, into My one of the profession's leading, leading experts. And that is all for this week. So thank you again for joining us for another episode of Advice Around the World.